So John's right. I did go to Texas A&M and I made a classic but rookie mistake yesterday of truly believing that 13-14 meant we were going to win. So as we gather and we mourn this morning, let us all console each other, probably confess a few sins and get into God's word today. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you go ahead and turn there, we're going to be picking it up in the middle of a chapter. So let me give you kind of the bullet points of what Paul has said up until this point in his letter to the church at Ephesus. What he's been speaking of to this point is the, the intricate workings of the Godhead and the salvation of sinners. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what do they do in saving us? That's what, we, that's what he's been looking at so far. And in verses 3 through 5 in this chapter, the Father chooses. He's predestined before the foundation of the world, his elect. And then Jesus... In verses 6 through 12, the Son, second member of the Trinity, he redeems those elect. And then the last member of the Trinity, the third member, the Holy Spirit, is said in verses 13 and 14 to be a seal and a pledge. And a pledge could also be translated down payment, that what God has said he will accomplish, he will accomplish fully. So that's what Paul's been talking about so far to this faithful church here in Ephesus, and what he's going to now move into in 15 through the end is what we're going to be looking at today, is a charge, a prayer for these people to know God. That's what he's going to be, his prayer is going to be for them, that they would know God. And when we know something, when we, well, when we love something, or we've experienced something that's incredibly meaningful to us, we become unofficial experts on it, don't we? Like we tend to just dive headlong in and to figure out everything there possibly is to know about that thing, whether it's the person you're interested in and marrying or it's the next coming fad or whatever it is. Um, and I've been subjected to a few of those things. And my siblings, you guys probably understand this as older, as the oldest sibling, the younger ones are perennially jealous of the older one. And that's just kind of how it happens. And my siblings express their jealousy through rudeness and mockery and really kind of just this shallow behavior to which I never retort. I just merely pray for them and say, God bless you and move on. But what they like to do is they like to make fun of me and say, like, you can chart Stuart's life out. That's how they talk. You can chart Stuart's life out by... You know, his phases of interest, this was his drum phase, this was his fish tank phase, this was his whatever phase. They just kind of, they do that, and then they sound really unintelligent as they do so, and I say, peace and blessings, and I move on. But the sad truth is that I have had some series of interests. One of those, as a kid, was dogs. I loved dogs. I want, I, we had an old dog when I was a kid, and so he's kind of like, ah, you're you're old. All the dogs on TV are fun and young. So I, I wanted a new dog. And so I got, my parents got me for Christmas or my birthday, I can't remember, a dog book. But not the, the cheesy little AKC one that only has like labs and poodles and Dalmatians. This was like the unauthorized version that was super thick. And it had dogs in there like Carlean bear dogs and Nova Scotia duck tolling retrievers. And I, I, I knew these dogs. I studied this book and I would pour over it and read it and flip over it and read the, the write-ups and all these things, the, the countries of origin for these breeds. I loved it. So when I was a kid, we used to do this wild thing called going outside. It was wild. We would go outside and we would engage in uh, interactive play face-to-face with people. It was primal times. And we... Uh, and so we would go out there and our parents would follow us out there and I would also engage in this play outside in the elements. And people would walk 
through the neighborhood, like virtual reality, but in reality, they'd be walking through the neighborhood, and we'd stop and talk to these people. And one time, uh, there was a new couple walking through, an older couple, I think they had become professors at, at A&M, and, and they're coming through, and they had this dog with them, and they stopped, my parents start talking to them, and engaging them in conversation, and I'm just locked onto this dog, as, a, as like a third, fourth grader, like this, whoa, whoa, I'm staring at the dog. The people could have had eight legs and two heads, I don't even remember what they looked like. I was just staring at this dog. My parents are talking and discussing and meeting them, saying, hey, these are our kids and all this stuff. And then they, my mom finally goes, wow, that's a beautiful dog. What kind of dog is that? And I spurred out, it's a German short-haired pointer. Because I knew. And my mom was like, what? And the people were like, what are you, weird kid? How do you know our dog? And, but I, I had seen that picture a thousand times. I had studied it. I knew its country of origin. I knew how easy it was to train, its grooming needs, all these things. I had studied it. And it just knew it right when it came out because I, I was, it was important to me. So I poured everything that I had in as a little fourth grader. I still have the book. It's been re-glued several times. But I poured everything into it because I loved it. And I wanted to know everything there could possibly be to know about dogs. That's what Paul's going to be praying for the Ephesians to do with God. His prayer is going to be that they would know God. That they would know him at an obsessive level. Do you know God? That's what this, this whole section is going to be about. And it's worth noting that Paul spends 12 verses explaining the, the beautiful facets of the Trinity's work in our salvation. And then he's going to spend nine verses telling these people, praying for these people to know God. That's what he's going to spend the rest of this chapter on. So let's look at verse 15. It says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers so verse 15 we gotta note two things about these ephesians that they have an obvious an apparent an unashamed faith in christ and everybody sees and everybody knows and they also love the saints they love christians really well this is their reputation you know, if, we can, if it could be said of us that we, our faith and love for Christ is obvious and our love for the saints is also undoubted, then we are well on our way in the quest for Christ-likeness. That those are absolutely critical factors. Those two factors are a lot of the reason why I read Christian biographies a lot. The lives of faithful men and women. I mean, think about missionaries who are starving themselves, giving their food away to the people they're trying to share the gospel with, those who have converted in a foreign land, or, or other leaders who you know, spend all day ministering and preaching and teaching and leading and meeting with people, and then they, just, they say, I just need two, I need two hours with the Lord. i got to just go walk. So they're just pacing the beach, praying for hours with God. That's, that, that's, that's who these Ephesians are. They love God and they love people and everybody knows it because Paul says that I've heard about this. I'm not there, but I've heard about it. That's who these Ephesians are. This is a big deal to know about them before we get in there. But do you notice in verse 16 who Paul thanks for their faithfulness, for their love? He says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Not giving thanks to you, but for you. See, Paul's not confused as to why or how this godliness in the Ephesians is happening. 
Because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write Galatians 2.20, which says, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul was not under some delusion that Christians, when they behave like Christ, it's something that they have done. He's very aware that it's Christ. If there be any good anything noble, anything righteous within us, it is Christ in us, and that is it. So Paul says that, to these, that he's correctly directing his prayer to God and thankfulness for these Ephesians. In verse 17, he gets into his prayer for them. He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. His specific prayer for these Ephesians is that they would come to know God, his glory and his power. We're going to look at his power in a few verses, but he prays that they would know God. And I would argue that this is one of the greatest deficiencies of the church universal. We don't know God. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, says it like this. He says, Ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of the church's weakness today. We know a lot of things about God, but do we know God? There's a big difference in knowing things about God, right? Or knowing things about anybody and then knowing that person. When I was a kid, we had... we the George Bush Library was being built in College Station. So we went through the George Bush Presidential Library and I learned a lot of things about President George H.W. Bush. And then we had this crazy thing happen where they were going to come to College Station. And so our schools all let out and we got to go and wait in line for this train to come and drop off George Bush Sr. and his family. I don't know why I took a train. We do have planes and cars now. But they took a train and we're all waiting by their tracks behind these barriers with Secret Service dotting the rows. And I'm just sitting here. I got a front row seat. I got my hand ready. I'm thinking, I'm a cute kid. He can't pass me up. He's going to have to shake my hand. I'm going to shake a president's hand. This is a good day for me. I'm only in sixth grade. So I'm super excited about this. And he comes down, the doors open up, and I got my hand reached over, and I'm looking right at him, and he just walks right past me. And I was like, that... George Bush Sr. is rude. He is not nice. All those nice things you learned about him in the museum is a sham because he did not shake my hand as he was walking through. Sure, there was thousands of people there, but my hand was right there. And then coming after him is just kind of, you know, measly Governor Bush. And I'm like, okay, you own the Ranger. That's pretty cool, I guess. I'll shake your hand. So he shakes my hand. And then we go on throughout the day. Then the election in 2000 comes around and old measly Governor Bush is running for president. And I'm like, hey, I know that guy. He's a good guy. Shook my hand back in the day. So I know him. We got to vote for him. I'm going to vote for him in a few years. I can't right now, but you should because I know him. He's a good guy. He's a good, and there's a difference between knowing and knowing about. And obviously that's a silly example but there is something to be said for knowing something about someone and then actually knowing that person, knowing that individual. That's a big difference. And we need to come to know God. In verse 17, we need to be aware of how that process comes about. 
His prayer is that God may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That God may give it. We can't muster up the knowledge of God on our own. It's just not in us. We, we, we can't do this on our own. And really, when you think about it, anybody can learn facts and stats about the God of the Bible. From Richard Dawkins to the most liberal theologian out there who doesn't actually know the real God, they can all know facts. They can just open the Bible. It's the best-selling book in all of world history. You can find a copy and read it and figure out some facts about God, but that doesn't mean you know him. That doesn't mean if I happen to read John 3, 16, I'm, I'm saved. You don't know Jesus. So there is a big difference in that. So we need to know him and we need to be enlightened. That Paul prays that God may give it to the Ephesians because we need to be enlightened. Look at verse 18. I pray that the, heart, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We were darkened before believing in Christ. And if we have any doubt on that, Paul puts that away in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. We are darkened before God. We are darkened unless he chooses to enlighten us. So I don't need to look inwardly to find more about God because that's not where it's going to be. I need to be enlightened as to who God is emanating from himself, not from me. So Paul prays that I pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to know these things. We need to be shown the truths about God. And the great thing that we must always hold on to is that this is possible. A lot of times knowing God, studying your Bible feels impossible. It feels daunting, but this is very possible. Because not only has God given us a divinely inspired and errant Bible, but he has placed himself within us. He has willingly indwelt the hearts of those he has regenerated with his Holy Spirit to illumine us and enlighten us to the truths of his word. So we aren't stumbling and fumbling around in the darkness. In our postmodern world, truth is relative right? Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. So you can kind of do your thing. Let's just all kind of coexist, right? And then there's this, there's this anecdote out there uh, of an elephant and six blind men are all feeling the elephant and they're like, okay, feel this thing. And th- that's an elephant and describe what it is. That's all. That's us. We're all kind of looking for religion. So there's a guy at the tail and he says, oh, an elephant's like a rope. It's just like a long, skinny, kind of fuzzy thing. And there's a guy at the front. He's like, no, an elephant's like a boa constrictor. It's a huge snake. A guy on the tusk, it's like a spear, like a, like a stout weapon. Guy on the leg, it's a tree. Guy on the side, it's a wall. Guy on the ear, it's a fan. And everybody's feeling the same thing, but they just have, they're just blind and we're limited. So what's of course, you're right. You tail people. Yeah, you're good with that. You leg people. You're fine with that. That's, it's all talking about the same elephant. You just are limited. But what, what happens if the elephant speaks? What happens if the elephant says, hey, I'm an elephant. I'm a massive mammal with four legs and two big tusks and a trunk that I eat with. I eat vegetables. I run around and people say I have a good memory. That's what I am. I'm an elephant. Wouldn't we be fools to go, wow, it's really interesting that that's your perspective. 
That's, that's, hey, that's great for you if that's what you think an elephant is. I, other hand, I believe the elephant is a rope. So, hey, that's cool if you think it's a mammal that walks around and does that. And, no, we're idiots if we believe that, right? And then we're also unmerciful if we go, hey, that's great. You go on thinking the elephant is a wall. That's awesome if that's how you experience elephant. That, that's, that's not okay because the elephant has spoken. And he is therefore the authority on himself. So if he has spoken, spear people, you don't get to keep going on in your spear peopleness. You have to now submit to what the elephant has said that he is. And that's what we have. We have a Bible. And God has spoken. So we're not fumbling around in the darkness at all. So there is a, a, an absolute truth that we need to know. And Paul says, he goes on in verse 18. He says, that you may be enlightened so that you may know what the hope, what is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Now, biblical hope is different than our hope. We had a lot of false hope yesterday in the third quarter, 14, 13. But, but our hope was, was also kind of tempered with reality. We're playing an NFL team. This isn't very fair. So we're, we might lose. That's what we called hope, right? We, we might win, we might not win. That's, that's human hope. Biblical hope is not that. There is no chance of biblical hope not coming to fruition. Biblical hope is a confident assurance of a coming reality. That that is coming and I'm just waiting for it. That's biblical hope. It's, it's, it's a reality. It's not a huh, maybe, maybe not thing. That's not what we live in. So what Paul wants them to be enlightened to is their reality, their status as Christians. That this is who you are as the called out ones, as Christ ones, Christians. That's, that's what he wants them to know. That we need to know that we are not condemned anymore because we failed to keep God's perfect law. We're not under condemnation. We're under grace because Jesus didn't fail to keep God's perfect law and he did fulfill it. And we come under that if we believe and then we are covered in the blood of Christ. That's our confident hope. Paul doesn't want people to get lost in that, lost in unsurety. He wants them to be confident in who they are. We got to know this stuff, these precious truths of the gospel. Let us never get over them. Let us never look for more in Scripture. Like, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, you believe in faith alone, Christ alone. But what, like, what else is there? Like, what, what other cool thing? That's everything. Everything points to that gospel. That gospel will never be plumbed to its depths by us on earth. We will always be digging and learning and, and finding some nook and cranny, some other facet of the diamond as it turns in front of us. We have to know this. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, 1 through 4, that, that please take caution so that you don't neglect so great a salvation. Understand what this is. Know this. Spend your life knowing this. It's not a waste of time. Any time ever spent in Scripture pulling things apart is never a waste of time. It is a waste of time to figure out what did Mark Twain really mean by the raft on the river with Huckleberry Finn? What was that symbolizing? That's a waste of time a lot of times, okay? Can we just be honest about some of these literary things that we do? But that's never a waste of time with the gospel. You're never wasting your time. Like, what is that? The hope of his calling. What is this hope that I have? What am I stepping in? What do I know? That's, that's knowing God. It's never fruitless. We got to know these things. That's what Paul's saying 
to this group. And he also wants them to know in verse 18 what's coming for them, their inheritance. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? He wants them to know that there is, they're living for something greater than what they can see and hear and feel right now. That we are not living for 2016. We are living for eternity. And that when God recreates the entire cosmos, it's only going to be the saved that are there. We lose sight of that a lot of times. I think we, we, we don't study heaven a lot. We don't study eternity a lot. Or we don't spend time, really, we don't spend time pondering. We live in, a, in an, an era where thinking is a waste of time. Doing is a lot more important. But let us think and meditate upon the glories of heaven, of eternity, so that when it looks like the world is burning down around us in the 2016 presidential election, that we're looking forward to a, an entirely different government system. A one monarch who makes the perfect decision for everyone all the time. And is the divine judge and divine law emanates from him. And the only people that are going to be there are those who have been regenerated by him. That's what Paul says. Put your hope in that. Know that. That we are co-heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen says that we, the adopted sons, the adopted daughters, are co-heirs with the begotten son. The only biological child, we are co-heirs. We're not getting second best. We're not getting leftovers. And that who is this God, this father, that can take his inheritance and not divide it up equally among everybody, but give everybody a full portion? I can't do that with my estate, but God can do that with his. That's why it's his inheritance. He's giving everybody the full allotment. Let us know that. Let us know this God. That's what Paul is urging these people to do. Now we have to ask ourselves, why know all of this stuff? Why is it never a waste of time to spend our, spend our time, spend our days plumbing the depths of Scripture and trying to figure out what all of this is and study and meditate? Why is that not a waste of time? If it's just going to happen in the future, like with glory in heaven, okay, it's going to happen whether I know it all or not, or I'm already saved right now. I know I, I have the simple faith of a child, so I don't need to uh, learn more or spend kind of time. That's for smart people. Why, why do that? I think the answer lies in this reality that when we know God more, we know God fully, which will never happen until we are fully regenerated. But when we're on that pursuit, it drives us to a deeper and a more pure worship of him. Because I lack the words. When I'm praying and I'm trying to spend some time in adoration of God, I end up saying the same thing over and over a bunch. And, and I'm like, I want to know more. There's, there's more to you, God. If I can describe my wife's greatness in, in more words than I can God, then that's a problem. I need to go to the Psalms and let those psalmists just pour over me because they are never repeating themselves except for Psalm 136 where he repeats himself over and over and over to drive home a point. But they're constantly finding these beautiful ways to know God and express divine worship for him. So when I study the Bible, I'm wrecked over my own sin, the level, the magnitude of my sin, and then to then turn and have that juxtaposed to the mercy of God to save me and to, and to keep me saved, then I, that drives me into a level of worship, a level of profound unction 
that can't come from within me. It has to come from what God has revealed to me when he's enlightened the eyes of my heart to know him more. To steal from a professor of mine, Dr. Bingham, he said, the greatest thought that you will ever think is what you think about when you think about God because that will determine every other dimension of your existence. I'm gonna say that again. The greatest thought that you will ever think is what you think about when you think about God because what that thought is That will determine every other dimension of your existence. Because if I think that God is a flying spaghetti pasta monster, then I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm going to live however I want to live because God is a joke. If I think God is a non-Trinitarian, vindictive God who gives full credence to the elimination of unbelievers, then I'm going to do that. That's going to order my life. But if I believe that God is Trinity fully divine, fully equal in Godhead, and that the second member of that trinity took on flesh, laid aside his divinity, the use of his divinity, and took upon my debt upon upon himself for me, then that's going to severely direct the direction of my life and how I make decisions and how I walk around and how I worship that God. I mean, think about since 1945, 70 years since World War II ended, how many movies and books, and plays, and discussions, and new majors in college, and things like that have been, we've had an endless stream of media about that war since it ended. Why? And why that one as opposed to some other ones maybe? That war, the more we learn about it, the more we grow about it, the more you're just driven to reverence and gratitude for what somebody else did on your behalf in the face of wicked evil. You ever thought about that? Why we keep going back to World War II? The evil was so evil and so bad and, and the cost was going to be so great and we benefit here and now from what some other men, man did on our behalf where, oh, far away from where we live. So we study it and we look at it and, we, and it, divi- it drives us into a gratitude that we wouldn't have if we didn't know the fullness of what they had done. That's what Paul is trying to get us to direct ourselves to with God. Although it's far more in, uh, in the balance than just 70 years of world history. This is eternity. Eternity past and eternity future. That we study what he has done on our behalf that we could not accomplish. So it drives us into worship. And when we realize who God is and what he has done, we have to consider his power. That's verse 19. Let's consider his power. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. We consider his power. God's omnipotence stands apart as a characteristic in preeminence of other characteristics of God. Because if God is not all-powerful, then he cannot be all-knowing. And if God is not all-powerful, then he cannot be omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. And if God is not all-powerful, then he can't be omnibenevolent, meaning he's not all good. He's just really good. So his power, that word that translated power is Greek word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. Power. We need to study this power and to know this power. What kind of God must we serve that he can claim us out as his own before the foundation of the world? What kind of God must we serve that he can save us individually? Just take a minute 
Take time later today to think about what it took for you to get saved. What all had to line up perfectly? Who had to still be alive to cross your path at that moment? How many other people behind that person had to be faithful in sharing their wisdom and their testimony, what they've gotten from the Lord? Just, just, the, just the magnitude, if you just look at yourself, and even if you feel like, feel like you have kind of a, a simply explained testimony, I grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents, well, what about their parents? What about their parents? Like even, I mean, today in age, are they, are they together divorced? I mean, all these different things that came together just for you to get saved. And if you think about the vast spider web out of that, and then now imagine that for every single Christian that's ever walked the face of the earth, the same thing has happened. What power does this God have toward us? We notice that he says that, that is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's what Paul wants these Ephesians to think about, his power towards you and I, towards those who have believed in him. Because in verse 18, it refers to our past, the hope of his calling. That was a moment in time that happened. I'm saved once and it happened then, sometime in the past, at some point whether it's recent or distant. That's the past. And the future was the riches of his inheritance, right? You're looking forward to glory. Your inheritance is a co-heir with Christ. But this, this surpassing power of God towards us who believe is the present, that he's presently working. And how does he display this power in time and in space? He displays this power in time and in space through Jesus. Look at verse 20 which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He brought this about in Christ. Now it's important to note who Paul attributes the resurrection to. Surely the the, the whole Trinity was involved in this process, but Paul specifically gives reference that it is God the Father who raises Jesus from the dead. Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, when he's giving his big sermon, the first big sermon after Pentecost, he says, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God raised him up. That's what got Paul, this power that God, Paul is attributing to God. Now let's notice too where Jesus is. He was brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Seated him. He's sitting down. So I don't know about your house when you were growing up, but if you were sitting down, that meant you weren't working. So if you were supposed to be working, sitting down is a bad thing. And you get in trouble and you get beaten. But if you're up working, that means you're working. Now let's notice that Jesus is sitting down. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's no longer in this redemptive work which was not the case in the old testament let's look at hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 and 12 the writer explains it like this but when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with human hands that is to say not of his creation and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. So the priests in the Old Testament never obtained eternal redemption. They never just went in one time and then it's done. 
They were going in and out of the Holy of Holies, making sacrifices on behalf of the people daily. And then yearly, they have Leviticus 16, the, the, the Day of Atonement, this Yom Kippur, where this massive redemption of sins has to take place with the scapegoat and the like. So they're never done. And if you read Exodus 37, when the people come out of Egypt and God's saying, okay, here's how I want you to construct the tabernacle. When you get to the furniture, there's a table, there's an incense altar, there's an Ark of the Covenant, and there's a lampstand. But there is no chair. There's no chair. God says, hey, I know the Levites are going to get really tired, kind of going in and out a bunch. Why don't you put a chair in there for them? There's no chair because their work is never done. Uh, an active priest, Levite, is never sitting down because his work of redemption is never done. It's never fully paid for. But that's not so with us in the New Testament. That's why we can faithfully sing Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay some of it, and he's not currently paying it. He paid it all. All for one, at one moment. And that's why he's seated at the right hand. This is the power of God. That he can eliminate death in one three days in a tomb. One act, and he can obliterate the sting of death for eternity. This is the power of this God. And his position's unparalleled. Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is no one on his level. He has no checks and balances. No one gives him counsel. He has no cabinet. No one can oppose him, challenge his leadership, because he is a divine monarch. So we have to ask ourselves, do we know this divine monarch? This all-powerful, fully divine monarch ruling, do we know him? Do we know him? So in verse 22, when the Bible wants to make something incredibly clear, it affirms that thing and it's positive and then it denies it in the negative. So for example, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It seems like the end of that verse could have been left off, right? Because he already said he is the way, the truth, the life. So that's the, that's a definite article that there's only one, the. Not, he's not a way, a truth, a life. He's the. But to make it crystal clear, he is the way and no one's coming in a different way. So when the Bible wants to affirm something, make it very clear to us, it affirms it in a positive, denies it in the negative. That's what he's going to do here. In verse 21, he said he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. So Paul's saying he's above everything, everything he is above. Also, in case you were wondering, everything else is underneath him. So say above and under, just so we don't miss it. It's going to make it crystal clear for us as we try to study these things. So then in verse 22, or verse 23, he's going to be wrapping these, this idea up. In verse 22, though, back it up. He says, and gave him as head over all things to the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This all-powerful God has set his son as head over a body of which you and I are joined not only to each other, but also to our divine head. He is preeminent above all things. That's how powerful 
this God is and where does this power lead? We're going to get into the rest of the book of Ephesians is all about the church and how God has ordained this church and what do we do as the church? And this is ultimately where his power is displayed in such glorious magnitude, but he's going to take this impotent, rebellious rabble like you and I, and he's going to use us to save the world. He's going to take his enemies. That's his, that's his me- method, his venue. He's going to, I'm going to change enemies and make them sons and daughters. And then I'm going to make them join as body parts, join to one another. And then underneath their divine head, that's how powerful this God is. And when you want to just humiliate your opponent, you use an inferior method or an inferior implement to do so, right? If you want to establish your dominance in tennis, you say, hey, I'm going to use a frying pan. You get a racket. Let's just go, Right? I'm going to beat you with a frying pan. And and God's not opposed to doing those kinds of things either. In Judges 15, Samson, who is not a good judge, who is constantly bucking up against the authority of God, the authority of his own parents. He's like, I'm not only am I going to use Samson to conquer evil as my divine representative amongst the people, but I'm also going to let Samson conquer the enemy with a donkey jawbone. So I'm going to have a thousand well-trained warriors, these, these international bullies, and I'm going to let him kill a thousand guys with a piece of animal anatomy used to crush grass into smaller grass. I mean, just, and it's a thousand guys. Let's count to a thousand. We'd be here for 30 minutes just counting to a thousand. And then he's just one after the other with a donkey jawbone. And how, how much pummeling can a bone take? Was he down to the molar at the end? Just kind of, because it's just anatomy. It's biodegradable. It's going to go back into the dirt. And God says, I can do whatever I want. Let me display my power to the nations. So they can go back. Yeah, one guy killed a thousand of us. And he didn't even really have a sword. He just kind of had a, a, a tooth canal to use against us. So he humiliates them by using an inferior implement. And that's God's power displayed in us to those who believe the church, the body of Christ. God says, how about this? I'm going to conquer death with an unlawful execution of an innocent man. And then I'm going to use to spread that message, rebellious, sinful people who hate me in their natural state. That's divine power. That that is the power of God. So we have to ask, do we know this God? Do we know him? In conclusion, we, we think we know some major facts about God, but that's not enough. Anybody can know facts about God. And we're, we're very fond of saying, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And that made a killer bumper sticker in the 90s. Right? It's not a religion, it's a relationship. It sounded really good. But if it's a relationship, then you have to know that person. If I can look up on Wikipedia and find out about that person as much as you know, then you don't know them. You know about them. So do we know God? Do we know what he loves? Do we know what pleases him? Do we know what frustrates him? Do we know what angers him? Do we know how uh, rebellious enemies of his become his adopted sons and daughters? Do we know this God? Now let's ask an even more penetrating question that I have to ask myself and need to be asking myself regularly. Do I even care about knowing this God? Because it's going to take effort. Ours is not a religion of experience 
where if I go and have enough experiences, then that counts as good. It is a religion where God has spoken. The elephant has opened his mouth. So do I care enough to get into my Bible? Because there is no other way to know God that is not mysticism or hearsay, but through his divinely inspired and inerrant word. So am I going to take the time to get into my Bible so that when I'm squeezed, I bleed Bible. The words of God come out of me because he has spoken. Let's think about that and let's ponder that as we go into this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for the divine word, the inspired word that you have given us. You could have left us to stumble and fumble in the darkness, trying to figure out who you are and what it is you require of us, but you have made yourself clear. And we are so unworthy of that. Father, make us students. Make us studious as we study and as we desire to grow in our knowledge of you. We ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the knowledge of you because we don't have it in us, but we know that you have not hidden yourself and you are not tricking us in any way. Father, empower us to be faithful believers, faithful followers, slaves who are doing only what we are supposed to do, knowing, loving, and serving this divine God. And we ask these things through Jesus' name. Amen.